Welcome to the Sailing Into Oblivion podcast, where we hear stories from everyday people who do extraordinary things. I'm your host, Jerome Rand. Hey, everybody. So just before we kick the second half of the Barry interview off, I just wanted to say big thanks to all the, the Patreon family. You guys are the best. And if anybody wants to support the podcast, just go to Sailing Into Oblivion on Patreon and uh, you can help keep this show going other than that i'm gonna let uh we'll just get right back into to chatting with barry he's got some great stories uh, i know the volume and stuff might fluctuate a little bit on this one but i just don't have a huge amount of time because i'm getting the boat ready to go north but i want to make sure this podcast goes out so that uh, when i get up to maine it's a fresh start and everything is all new and we get right into it so uh Without further ado, back to the conversation with Barry. Yeah, right. yeah. The year before that, 2018, mm. we're off the coast in the Gulf Stream, outside U.S. territorial limits, right? Yeah. And the same woman and I are doing the trip back up from the Bahamas, coming north. Yeah. And so sort of one thing happens first, which is kind of weird. We're out there in the Gulf Stream, and we go past a... Uh, well, a charter fishing boat. You know, where they have like, you know, 50 people fishing off the side of the boat. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah, not, not a outside, Okay, it's one of those. And there were guys in the back of the boat, and they were sort of very well attired. They were like in suits. They were dressed up. Mm-hmm. I'm not kidding. <laughs> no one had a fishing rod, but they were fishing rod kind of stuck in holders. Yeah. And they were sort of out Is it like there. a wedding party or something? Yeah, you wonder, right? Yeah, right. So we kept going. But the funny thing was, it never <laughs> showed on my radar. It was below my radar. There's no reflection coming off it. Oh, weird. It was so small, I never saw it. I mean, sometimes the, the reflection is so bad, it's a little tiny pinprick. Yeah, yeah. So it doesn't really pop up on your radar, right? And you, and, you know, do you have AIS at that point? No, I, I had AIS and never showed. And never showed, right? And I was showing Kitty how to use the radar and what seat clutter was, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And she looks up and she says, well, what's that? And right in front of us, probably 400 yards away, is this stupid fishing boat. And luckily, he accelerates and gets out of my way because we might have hit him. Oh, really? He was dead in front of us. Oh, wow. So the radar, which is you know, right up on the mast there, you'd think he'd get it down. But you know, if it had a dot, it was too small to see. There's no reflectors on it. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, that's kind of a curiosity. But so we keep going. And about, I don't know, 20, 30 minutes later, we look out on the side, going east. There's a contrail. Like oh, from a jet. A jet. Yeah. And it's not a regular straight across the sky contrail. This is a trail that's sort of going like ups and downs. It's like zigzagging, jumping up and down, random, uh-huh. randomly, right? And doing kind of loopy, kind of spirally things. It's not like acrobatics. It's it's, not somebody writing, you know, like, I love you, Jen. It's like something out of control. Oh, really? I'm looking, I'm thinking, someone's launched a missile and it's out of control. I didn't think a plane could take the kind of stresses is to go up, do over, come down, kind of roll it and like this. Yeah, yeah. My crew member, who's a pilot, thinks it's a plane that's being hijacked and it's out of control. Right? Weird. And then it goes through on a scent. It goes all the way up, 
comes down, does some big kind of loopy hiccup things. I call them hiccups because it's like this. Oh, okay. Yeah, mm-hmm. like uh, almost like a heartbeat monitor. Yeah, but they're erratic. They're not like nice and smooth. It's a heartbeat of somebody who's on heavy drugs. Yeah, someone has, <laughs> has no control of the, of the pain, right? And then it goes up, and it goes up, and it goes up. And, you know, she's saying 50,000 feet. You can't see the plane. All you can see is way in the distance. Just that trail. Just the trail. And it goes up, and it starts to do a loop. And it comes over the loop, and it starts to come down, and it stops. It goes away. Yeah. And then, tick, 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 bang! And there's this enormous explosion. The boat actually gets pushed across the water. Right? And you're, boom. What? What in the hell was this? Yeah. And you can't, there's no smoke. There's no, there's no explosion out there. Yeah? So I go on the radio and I call Coast Guard. And I say, this is, you know, blah, 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 Coast Guard, you know. And they what, uh, explain what I just saw. And they move me to 22 Alpha. And they go through it all again. But it's the position. I Luckily, as soon as it happened, I look at the, look at the compass and I've got a distance. Got an estimation of distances like 10, 12 miles out. Yeah. Right? And they do a check of all the aircraft in the air. Because they're like me. They're thinking, you know, hey, this has been a kid, this has been um, hijacking or something like that, or something's gone wrong. There are no missing military planes. There are no missing civilian planes that they can find. Right? They come back and they say, "Do you think it was a sonic boom?" And I say, "I don't know what it was. That's why I'm calling you. It yeah. might have been a sonic boom. You just don't know. There was no explosion in the air. You didn't see anything flash right. or any smoke. It just disappeared. Holy right? smokes! So they scrambled a helicopter." And they scrambled a high-altitude search plane. Really? Oh, yeah. Because they were worried. I mean, you don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. They kept me on 22 Alpha the whole way into Port Royal. Right. I finally called them back, and I said, well, should I stay on 22? And they said, no, no, you're fine. I said, do you need my any information? No, we know who you are. And the AIS signals, right? Yeah, yeah. And I said, well, do I need to fill in reports? And they said, no, you were triply confirmed. You were the first one. Oh, no shit. Other people. So four of the vessels in the area had the same phenomenon, but I was the first one to call it in. I guess they heard me call it in, and then they came in to back it up, but they had me on 22 Alpha, so I couldn't overhear anything like that. Right, right. right. And they say they didn't know what it was. They have no missing planes. They never figure it out? It was a sonic boom. It's just a sonic boom. So here's what happens, right? Um, SR-21 Blackbird or something. No, 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 no. A Czechoslovakian fighting jet, probably. Because I have a, I have a, have a friend. He used to own one. He's now ninety something. Yeah. And he and I would have been working on a book together one time, and he had his Czechoslovakian fighting jet, and it can break the sound barrier. Oh wow! And there's a there's a YouTube video I found later on <laughs> of two U.S. fighters coming back, and there were F-16s or F-18s, right? They were coming back from a mission. Yeah. And they had a call where there was an emergency attack, and they needed air cover. And these guys had already delivered all their armament. They had nothing left. Uh-huh. No bombs, no guns, nothing. And they were called to do something. So they ascended to a very high altitude. They radio called down to the troops at the bottom, and they said, you need to cover your ears and hit the deck. Oh, we're going to sonic boom, yeah. We're going to sonic boom. They went way up, and they came down vertically. Oh, so the sonic boom basically is moving follows, straight at follows them. Follows them down, straight like this. 
No so the sonic way. boom is falling. Right at the end, they pull out of it, and that sonic boom goes bang onto the earth. Holy right. smokes. On the water, of course, there's no reflectivity necessarily, so it travels straight across. Yeah, no yeah. Absorption. You get the full impact spreading out like an atom bomb. Right? So that must have been what happened That's with what you guys. Sonic boom, yeah. What? You know what? That's crazy. <laughs> Every time. I couldn't Every even imagine. Every time on the trip, there's been some sort of adventure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 I've come up one time and I've been, I've been tracked by a U.S. destroyer. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. They were doing some sort of act. You know, we were coming up, and this is before we got to Canaveral. This was like 20, I was by myself this time. I was 2016, something like that, coming up from the Bahamas, and I was off, way off Canaveral. Uh-huh. And before I got there, there was a uh, Canadian voice came on the radio, and they said, you know, we're Canadian Navy. We're doing a joint mission with the USA, and we're going to be at coordinates, and the message stopped right there. Like, there was a young a woman, and yeah. someone told her to shut that you-know-what up. Oh, wow, right. It's quiet after that, right? So I don't think, anything. I know where it is and what we're doing. We just keep going. In the middle of the night, we're coming up and there's a there's an offshore, there's like a light up ahead, big light, and then a light off to our other side. Mm -hmm. And there's vessels. You can sort of see vessels. I can sort of see them on radar, but not very well. No AIS, nothing out at all. Oh, gosh, no. And they're right up in front of me. So I keep going, I keep going, and... All of a sudden, one of the vessels that's way over on my port side starts towards me. I can see it on radar, and it's screaming towards me. I mean, it's moving through the water. Yeah. And it's like, I get in the radio, and I call this vessel approaching mine off Canaveral. Uh, I have you as a, on a collision course. What are you going to do? And this kid comes on. I mean, you know, young, young, whatever he is, naval kid. And he says, we're going to pass within 400, 400 yards ahead of your bow, sir. <laughs> that's a little close for comfort. 400 yards, you know, that's like an attack, right? <laughs> and he's flying. Yeah. And out of the darkness, he's only got this tiny little tiny light at the front. Yeah. This thing comes screaming out of the darkness right in front of me. Enormous wake. Comes screaming around, lays over on its side, and comes up behind me. Oh, wow. And there's people in the front with, like, guns. I mean, like, there's mountable machine gunny things. Yeah, yeah. And he sits up my back. And I just keep going up. And finally, it's like, I don't know what I should be doing. So I go on the radio and I say, you know, is it okay? I'm on this course. Is it okay to continue? And they said, yes, sir. Continue on your course. We're just going to follow you. We're going to follow you up. And they did the whole way back up. Oh, really? To the next set of lights and they peeled off. Huh. They were doing something out there. But I swear that vessel that came towards me yeah. had, had just, I mean, it was all flat planes. It was one of those stealthy things. The radar signal was almost negligible. You could just sort of see a little tiny coming towards you. That's so crazy. And a boat that big, that close, is going to be a major splash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, so they sure. were doing some high-tech stuff out there. Well, that's the thing. That I'm yeah. sure they must have the technology to block and that, and that, stuff. And that's why they shut down the exercise. And they wouldn't, wouldn't announce it. It was some right, top secret right. stuff going down. You know, all the years I've been out there, I've never once seen any sort of military... Ships, not yeah. not a once. Yeah. <laughs> Knock on wood, because I don't really want to see one. I suppose. Yeah, where you are, there probably shouldn't be many military ships. Yeah, I think yeah. I think more. But you would think you'd run into them, you know, traversing in and out of like Norfolk or something like that. But oh yeah, no, yeah. I haven't seen any. Yeah, God, that's so crazy. I, 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 I had a <laughs> friend I met down in the Bahamas one time. He was a uh, retired U.S. submarine captain, nuclear submarine captain. Oh, really? And he had his boot. Um, I got a couple of buddies that's done that. Uh, he's cool, right? And he one time he's doing the run across uh, 
behind Cumberland there where the sub base is. Mm-hmm. And because they closed the entire St. Mary's entrance thing down for the subs to come in and out. Oh, they do? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. I think it's St. Mary's. Anyway, it's the one next to Fernandina Beach, you know. And he's doing that. And he's not paying attention. And the little speedboat comes racing up to him. And you got to get out of here. you got to get out of here. The submarine comes. And Jim says to him, <coughs> no, that submarine came through 15 minutes ago. He's already back docked. Oh, really? Yeah, he knows enough about because they go into the water, right? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. And he knows enough from the displacements of the boats and the motion on the sea. He knows a submarine went right through there. Jeez. Yeah, it is gone. It's already back. He called them. They were, they were back in the base. They're done. <laughs> That's a whole different way. Could you imagine actually being on a sub and oh. just crossing like the Atlantic? He used to, his job was to go up and sit under the Arctic ice cap. Oh, really? And just sit there. Just sit there. And they'd monitor the Russian submarines and be ready to send up nukes. Jeez. It was their job. It was their, it was their assignment. Was sit in the bottom, and just wait. Just wait. Yeah, be yeah. be the closest yeah. uh, closest missile point. to to Russia. Russia probably back yeah. then. Yeah. yeah. Oh, jeez. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that didn't happen. Hopefully, it doesn't now. God, I hope not. Yeah. I'll sort of see. I mean, it would be awful. Yeah, it would. Yeah. Hmm. But people have not. People think it's going to be okay. No, it's not. There are no winners. Never. Oh no. gosh, no. If you you get, you have a full on nuclear attack. Uh, it's just yeah, it's a, it's a lose lose situation, one hundred percent. There's no. Well, the Russian nuclear torpedoes can come right into Buford. Oh heck yeah! And you can't stop them. You know? You're gonna be able to stop anything, yeah. yeah. I mean, the missiles up in the air, you'll see them from space, and you've got a chance to shoot them down. The summer, the nuclear torpedoes. It's a nuclear powered torpedo with a nuclear warhead. Yeah. It, it only has to come within twenty miles of the coast. And you detonate that thing, and the chances are the tidal wave will wipe out the city that's <sighs> near it. I, I mean, this imagine. is just terrible stuff. I mean, people don't realize this is not a game you want to play. No, unfortunately, yeah. we've been playing it for 100 years now. And we're still playing it. I know, it's insane. It's like, what's thinking, you know? I can't wait until we start uh, fighting wars yeah. on like homeless and hunger. Yep, not going to happen. I'm a peaceful yeah. man, though. Say, so, hey, que- so, <laughs> questions for you. Yeah, sure. Hit me up. Okay. You've probably been asking, when have you. Being so scared, you almost filled your pants. Uh, <laughs> well, I definitely, you know, when you're down in the Southern Ocean and you're you're dealing with once once the wave heights get up to a certain size and so they're how still high, breaking. How high would that be? Uh, when when the average wave height is over twenty feet. So getting close to your mast, kind of thing. It looks like it's close to your mast. Uh, well, yeah. the random ones are, yeah. you know, because if 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 waves are sitting at about twenty, then every once in a while you're going to get a thirty. Yeah, it's and a thirty dangerous. foot breaking yeah. wave is is a sight to see, and it it can you know catches you in the wrong wrong angle or whatever. Yeah. It can really mess you up. But I I was knocked down twice on my big trip. The second time was really violent. It was deep in the. It was about fifty degrees south in the Pacific, yeah. and uh, it was at night. Luckily, there was a full moon, but it was just a chaotic sea, and it, it was interesting. That was one of the only times where I was in the vicinity of other sailboats. Yep. The Volvo guys were in the area, yeah. just south of me by about 60 miles, okay. and that was that was the storm where um, I think it's John, John Fisher got lost overboard. Yeah. Unfortunately, I wasn't in much communication with anybody, so and I didn't even know those guys were down so there. You use single sideband or no? I was just I had a sat phone so sat that phone, I could okay. do weather updates, yep. and then I had a little Garmin inReach so I could text people okay. position report daily. Yeah. But that that night was pretty scary because one of the things that had happened 
soon after that is the winds died off and got just below say 50 sustained and I was running with just a storm jib, uh, sheeted hard in the middle, no main, nothing, and just running with it. But I was starting to get slapped around more because the winds died. I just I wasn't going fast enough, yeah. And so I had to go on deck and then put up a bit of mainsail, which took about forty-five minutes because I wasn't going to turn into the wind. You have a trysail to it as well? No, I had my main the the triple reef is. Uh, about the same sail area as a radial laser sail. Okay. And yeah. this bow weighs 26,000 pounds. <laughs> yeah. 26 is pretty hefty. Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So she, she definitely, uh, but with that triple reef, I mean, it was made purpose-built for, you know, Southern Ocean stuff. And yeah. and it, it took me, I mean, I'm talking about raising this thing up an inch at a time, and the world is just crashing around me. It's nighttime. Yeah. It's all lit up because all those, those combing waves are lit by the moon. But yeah. That was definitely a scary one just to have to be up forward in those elements, yeah. Um, you know, right next to the mast. But really scared, scared. I think some of the scariest moments, honestly, are when you're in severe lightning storms. Oh, yeah. And yeah. the bolts are actually hitting the surface of the water. And I've had... Have you been hit yet? No, I, I have not been hit. But yeah. it was one of those things where I went through one when I was headed north to try and do the Northwest Passage just south of Sable Island. It was a really bad lightning storm. And within the next 24 hours, the AIS broke, the VHF oh, yeah. broke. yeah. The Garmin inReach broke. Yeah. So I it's went from having course. spares of everything to nothing to I'm using my spares now and yeah. now I don't have any backups. Um, yeah. And I, I figure, I don't think I got hit because I, I don't. No, no, there's I enough. I feel like you would know. No, there, there's enough magnetic radiation around you. There's yeah. enough, yeah. yeah I, so. I, was, I was hit sitting right at the dock. Oh, really? Right here on E dock. What did it do to the boat? What systems did you lose from that? Everything. Everything? Every single thing that's remotely electric is dead. Dead. Yeah. The, the storm was actually over the airport. Oh, okay. And I was on my boat watching the storm with the dock master and the boat in front of me. Okay. old guy called Ted. And we'd, we'd turn it and you could see the storm over the, over the airport. Yeah. Right? And it was a horizontal strike. It came out of the storm this way. Uh. Hit my mast because the storm went here. It was blue sky. Yeah, yeah. The storm was way over there, so it had to be a horizontal strike. Hit hit my mast at the very top, blew off the radio antenna. <laughs> I bet. As soon as it hit, I think I I was on the companionway. I think I fell down the companionway. My next memory was going through the boat from front to back, checking through holes. Yeah, I'll bet. Right. The, usually it blows out a through hole. Yeah, yeah. And uh, I couldn't find any water coming into the boat. So I started to calm down. Okay. Then that fun begins because then you have to, you know, you have to get it hauled out. Oh God! Were your wires just toasted? Everything? No, wires generally don't get toasted. Oh, okay. It's the electronics that gets toasted. Yeah, yeah. Okay. So I got hold. I I got hauled out the next day. I had to get towed over there because there's no engine starting, no batteries. Yeah, I bet. Yeah. I had just put in that same day, brand new. Um. Um. How do you call it? Uh, Alternator? No, brand new batteries. Oh, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> brand new. And those are definitely ripped, right? Uh, I thought so. Yeah. Jeez. They're lifeline, lifeline batteries. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, I just put in the, about the same day, I put in a brand new windlass. The next day before, it was a brand new windlass. Mm-hmm. 
And there were no batteries. Batteries are off. That was two. Um, what would I put in? I'd put in two 4D batteries and a starter battery and two batteries up in the bow. No, it was the Benetton. Sorry. I'd put in four D's back here. I'm getting it wrong. Benetton. I'd put in six volt batteries. Okay, yeah, yeah. And a starting battery. So six volt batteries, lifelines, and a starting battery. All lifelines. And they all had nothing left. Yeah, I'm bad. So I took them out and took them up to uh, the uh, electrician here in Buford. Right. And he tested me. He said, that crap. Just <clears throat> throw them in the trash. And I said, before we do that, let's, let's call the manufacturer. And I did. And the manufacturer got on the phone. And there's some technician guy there who's really, really, really good and goes through the results. And he says, okay, here's the next test you're going to do. And he told the guy, I was like, I don't know what he was talking because it was double Dutch to me, right? Yeah, yeah. He goes through this test and the guy does the test and he calls him back and gives him the results. He puts me back on the phone. He says, here's the good news. Your batteries are perfectly okay. Charge them up, they'll be fine. No way. Yeah. He says, what happens is you can take our batteries, you can throw them in the water. There's going to be a massive release of energy, which is yeah. what happened to you. Get them out of the water, wash off the salt water, put them on the charger, they'll come back to life. That's why you buy a Lifeline battery. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. And he's absolutely right. All four of them came right back like new. Yeah. And you got how many years you get out of them? Um... Couple more years. Couple more years. And then two trips to the Bahamas, so at least two more years. And I sold that boat and bought this boat. Right, right. Oh, nice. Um, But yeah, everything. I mean, everything else. Automator, automated controller, uh, refrigeration systems because they have electric controls. All that was. All that was shot. Yeah. Uh, All the radios were shot. I had a single sideband. I had two chart plotters. I had AIS. I had all the instrumentation was shot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It'll get everything. The windlass was shot only because it burned out the fuse in front of it. Ugh. Okay. Did you have a computer on board? Oh, like yeah. a laptop? Put those in the trash. Just gone. All, all, and those yeah. weren't plugged in or anything? No, no, right? no. What happens is a halo effect. The initial hit, hit comes down the mast. Uh huh. Right? Some will also come down the shrouds because it's, it's conductive. Yeah. It has to get down to the water. Right? While the, that same year, while I was down in, the, in, in Cuba, I was waiting for a window to cross to the Bahamas. I was about 10 days waiting for a window. Yeah. I spent that time grounding the boat. Oh, I okay. bonded everything on the boat. I bonded some of the stanchions. I bonded the windlass. I bonded everything right down through to the steel keel. And all the through hulls are all bonded together. And the purpose of that is? So when the lightning hits, it dissipates through <clears> all the engine. Everything it goes through every single thing evenly, basically. Right. It finds the least resistance, and then it flows out. Right? Yeah. So... And then around that electrical charge, there's a halo effect of energy. Yeah. Electromagnetic energy. And that's not on a wire. That's just coming right through the air. It jumps, right? It's almost like one of those, uh, <clears throat> isn't there like a magnetic pulse bomb or something like that? Yeah. Where they can. Electromagnetic energy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a solar flare. But electromagnetic energy is what kills your boat. Right, right. right. So, yeah, everything electrical was in some, the wiring was basically okay. So the wiring didn't have to go. It was just everything that was attached to yeah. it. <laughs> everything else. Everything attached to the wire. Every Holy sing- smokes, man. Yeah, every single thing. But the boat was insured for, I think, $62,000. Yeah. 
is I bought it cheap as a bank foreclosure. Okay, nice. I just put all this new stuff on it. Uh, I think I had it insured for $65,000. Yeah. The insurance company was Boat US. They totaled the boat. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. Wow. And then they gave it back to me. Uh He said, we're going to total it. There's your payout figure. We're going to give it back to you. If you want to do the work yourself, someone else can pay for it. But we're we're afraid it'll cost more than sixty five because the estimate was just on $65,000. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, We're pretty sure it'll go higher. The mast is interesting. The very top of the mast where the lightning actually probably had come down and sort of wrapped around it, there were three cuts through the very top of the, in the aluminum about this far from the masthead. Mm-hmm. There were three diagonal cuts like this, like someone had got a hacksaw. Oh, and wow. Saw, didn't saw the whole way through it, but sawed like into a sixteenth of an inch into the mast with the lightning in it. It's <laughs> probably some sort of like plasma. Yeah, plasma effect, yeah. Yeah. No, no aluminum, right? Holy yeah. smokes. Uh, yeah, and... Everything, everything was shot. Every single thing. Yeah, I bet. I bet. Well, now, I've, I've heard though you can supposedly if you put stuff in an oven, anything, anything that's a Faraday cage. Yeah. So your oven's a Faraday cage. I just don't know if that actually works. It or does. Not. It does. Yeah. Did you have it? You didn't have anything in I didn't there even, though. No, no, but over the years, I've talked to enough people to pretty much know what what to do. So that's that would be the recommendation. So I had done, done most of the important stuff, which is get the lightning to the water in the shortest, cleanest route. Yeah. That means no kink cables. It's nice and smooth flowing, you know, that there are good solid connections. You know, get everything and as many connections out to the water, right? It's possible, right? And that's mostly what? So that the fiberglass doesn't catch on fire or something? Yeah, what happens if it gets to here, say, and that com- it's coming down and it can't get to the water. Yeah, keep talking. Right. It's going to use the, the glass and the fiberglass as the conduit. It'll basically blow your boat apart to get to the water. Yeah. It'll just burn its way through. Unless it can just flow right it flows out. right yeah, to yeah. it. Right? Um, the scented bronze plates can be a problem, which I have a, have a scented bronze plate. Because uh, say there's six bolts holding it in. Yeah, I've got one of those. Any one of them is connected. It'll want to try to get to the other bolts, and it can actually blow out the holes. Oh, out. really? Yeah. Ha! Yeah. So it gets pretty messy. Yeah, right? yeah. Um, I now, just sort of hope that I don't get hit. So here's the joke, right? <laughs> when we got it, we hauled it out. Yeah. And the guy's looking at it. He's got to find the exit wound. Oh, right, right, the point yeah. where the lightning left the birds, the exit wound. They've got to find it. And he's looking for it, and he's looking for it, and he can't see it. And the owner of Marsh Harbor, Peter, and I are looking at the boat and saying, this guy's crazy. Every single through-hole, every single through-hole is missing a donut around it of anti-fouling. I used uh, copper, the 66... Uh, oh, yeah, yeah, copper-based stuff, right? High-based copper anti-fouling. The copper in the anti-fouling is gone. The anti-fouling is gone. The, under, the undercovers are fine. Yeah. But it went through the through-hole, which is bronze, got into the anti-fouling, and just burn out like a ring around. No way. Every through hole is missing that. <laughs> so that was your exit point. Every one of them was an exit point. It did exactly <laughs> what it's supposed to do. Yeah, yeah. Right? Oh, that's so crazy. Right? And he wouldn't accept it. He said, no, there's no exit. And he writes that there was no exit point. Well, he wouldn't accept sense, it. Every yeah. He didn't understand how it worked. Ha! <laughs> right? So at any rate, so I've talked to uh, NASA engineers who are responsible for electrical conducting the, the uh, space, the rockets. Yeah, yeah. And there are more more strikes out there than anywhere else in the entire country. 
Oh, I don't doubt it. Yeah, Florida's. Nice. And his rockets regularly take hits, he tells me. Yeah. And they've never lost a rocket yet. Yeah, you would think so. Right. Why? Yeah. Because, A, they're properly grounded. Right. right? And if it's all done properly, it comes right down the grounding, down to the ground. It skirts right around all your goodies. Yeah. Right? So I have a combination of things. One, when I go offshore, I always put a GPS and a handheld VHF in my microwave. Okay, yeah. Right? Because it's small space, it's easy to get to. The oven is going to swing around and it's got to be held place. That's going to get done moving around while the boat goes through the water. Yeah. Even though it's gimbaled. Right. Um, <clears throat> so I've got that. I've also got uh, supposedly lightning interrupters. Right. Uh, lightning interrupter is going to basically interrupt the flow of electricity. As soon as it starts to come across, it jumps to an earth wire that goes back into the bonding system. Is that on every wire in the boat? No, it's the important wires. Okay. And that's basically any of the electronics. In the electronics. You, know, you can't do everything. Yeah. Uh, each one costs about 12 bucks to buy. Oh, wow. And okay. You, you wire those suckers in, and I hope to God it works. Because you know, what happens is it hits, hits the radio antenna, typically it's the highest thing. Yeah. And it comes straight down your radio antenna. Because your radio antenna joins into your radio. It's going to go right through your radio. Yeah, yeah. It's so going to jump into the 12-volt system behind the radio. And run through all your other communications. If you've got a communication network bonding into your radio, like a lot do now for GPS and stuff, mm. and DSC calls, it goes right down those lines into every other instrument on the backbone. All within the blink of an eye. In the blink of an eye. And it doesn't take much to just <clears throat> up the whole thing. So these interrupters, first of all, the f there's one of a particular type on the radio antenna itself. Yeah. Right? Okay, you have that. Um, and then the positive and negative wires for each instrument have its own separate breaker uh, for this lightning production system. Right. So I've got those, and they're stacked up in a run. Right? Um, so theoretically, that should, hopefully, so some of the instruments should be alive at the end of the day. Right, right. right? Um, Maybe, though. Yeah, yeah. It, that's such an insane amount of power, oh, yeah. a lightning strike. Oh, yeah. If we could figure out a way to harness and store it, energy would the trouble no is that much That much energy coming down in one hit yeah. is impossible to store. Isn't it 1.21 gigawatts? Yeah. Just like they say in it's gone. Back to the Future. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, I mean, you know, it's... That's crazy. That's a hit. I mean... You got hit once, so chances are you're not going to get hit again. Every time I go out, I worry about it. Statistically. Every time I go out, I worry about it. Because what, do, do, you, too. what do you do I hate it. when you're offshore? And in my case, let's say, let's say it's 60 miles offshore. Yeah. One lightning strike, you've lost your autopilot. So you're going to have to hand steer the whole way. Yeah. You may or may not have a motor. Because the chances are, even if your motor is, is pre-CAN bus, CAN bus motors, you can throw those in the... You've got to redo the whole CAN bus system. Yeah, yeah. Right? Old-fashioned motors, which basically are pretty simple electronically, should be okay, but there won't be any battery power to drive them. You yeah, if you can hand crank it. Right? Good so you, luck. Have to, you have to get to shore. You need to know your last known position. Yep, that's where the and old log book. it's in the chop plotter and it's fried. Right? Whoa, yeah. what? What kind of seamanship is that? It's in the log yeah. book. Well, yeah, what I do is I have my charts sitting up there on my cockpit table. And it's in a plastic cover. Uh -huh. And about every half hour, I get the GPS coordinates and I put them on the map and I have them coming down the coast. Well, that's good. There you go. Yeah. So well, I'm good enough. The compass should still work. Compass should work. Compass yeah. should still work. Right? So I've got a chance. 
and I've got a GPS in the microwave. Hopefully, I've, if that still works, because you know it's going to work. You have a Saxton on board? I do indeed. Very good. There you go. Don't know how to use it. <laughs> you got to have like a book with it. Well, right? I've got, I've got, I've got some Salt of the books. Yeah. But, yeah. Most of it nowadays, of course, you depend upon your uh, your, your computer application. Your, oh God! Yeah. To, get, to just put put it in your sights and there's your position. Right. So yeah, I've got a Saxton. It's a nice one. It looks pretty. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I, it's more of a hobby than. And anything. if I was doing what you do, I would be using the sextant. It's fun. It's fun. Yeah. I was actually thinking for this trip coming up, uh, just navigating with the sextant. Yeah, sextant and compass. Because on this boat, I mean, you talk about losing these systems, and I mean, essentially, yeah. I I've gone with with no engine before when I've run out of fuel and stuff yeah. for for months at a time. But the wind vane doesn't take any electricity. Sexton doesn't take it. I'm yep. usually always on the charts and the log and stuff, so yeah. I would just lose my refrigeration. So I, think, I think you're in basically good shape like that. Yeah, well, I you mean, have to be. If you're going to be planning those, like nine-month voyage, you, you have to prepare and almost expect that you're going to lose electricity. Do, you, do you, people actually understand how serious it is where you go? Uh, yeah, I think so. It, it's, yeah. Hard, it's hard for, for people to wrap their heads around uh, being out there and, and going to a place like the Southern well, Ocean. It's, it's inhospitable to the max. It's a no man's land. I mean, yeah. it's, you're, you're the well, most, there's, it's there's, the most isolated place you can go to on yeah. the planet. Yeah, um, my older brother built his first boat as a, as a catch in a place called Kalgoorlie in Western Australia. Mm, okay, yeah. And his plan was to get it to the coast because it was 400 miles from the nearest water and then sail it from there back to Sydney. Down uh, on the southern, in the southern, in the, 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 southern the Great Ocean. Bite, in the Great Bite, and he had never seen the Great Bite. It's freaking huge down there. Yeah. But I have. I'd seen it from a bu- tour bus. Oh, okay. Right, and it's like, it's desert, cliff, enormous boulders that used to be cliff, <laughs> and some really inhospitable ocean out there. Yeah. And there's nobody out there to come rescue because nobody lives there. There's no ships. There's no planes down there. It's just you and that cliff face. It's pretty empty void yeah. down that way. And if you go further south, you're probably safer. You won't hit the cliff. Yeah. You know? I, uh, I think when I, as I approached yeah. Australia, I, that's when I started dipping well down to about 40. I started out when I was south of Cape Lewin. I was probably at 44 degrees south. So you're down pretty far. Down pretty far. And then yeah. by the time I passed New Zealand, I was down at just about 50. Yeah. And I had to, I had to stay at 50 until Cyclone Gita. Uh, it, it thrashed Fiji. It did this crazy this S-curve. And then it hit New Zealand, and New Zealand broke it up. But then it sort of reformed into a pretty bad gale yeah. that I rode for the next two and a half days to the north uh to the northeast to get i wanted uh, my plan originally was to go across the pacific at about 40 degrees um but i ended up staying down between 50 and 47 degrees south the entire way across that's pretty far down yeah well and the thing is once you get i want to say it's around 110 degrees uh longitude or yeah longitude that's when you start to make your so about Two weeks out from Cape Horn, that's when you start to make your dive. You dip down. Because you don't want to get caught too close to uh, the continent of South America down there and have a really heavy southwesterly come pushing, in. Pushing you Pushing up, you yeah. in that you can't, you don't want to claw your way off of that. Yeah. That's like the most ominous lee shore on the planet. Yeah. 
So you get way, way so south. Way down. It was a shorter route to doing that. Yeah, I know. Well, the, the fishing boats, because uh, there's, there's guys that go from New Zealand and fish in the Falklands for squid, and yep, there's people from there that come back, and they run all the way down. The Great Circle Route brings you to 61 degrees south. Yeah. And there's icebergs and all oh, that yeah, sort of yeah. stuff. I didn't want to deal with any of that, but, yeah. you know, it was sort next of... Trip. Next, next trip. Yeah, right? <laughs> I have thought about it. Well, hey, listen, Barry, we're, we're already well past an hour, okay. but I, I just wanted to give you a chance to talk a little fun. bit about the book, okay. your books. Okay. I, did, I had no idea you were an author, man. Okay, so I started writing probably about 2006, I guess. Okay. 2005, maybe. Uh, just out of the blue? No, I've always been messing around writing stuff, but I hadn't done anything in really fiction, like for public market, you know? Yeah. Uh, my daughter was going to become a, when be, uh, she wanted to be a writer. She was a very good writer, and she was finishing high school, and she was going to go to do creative writing. Yeah. Uh, I thought, what a great project would be for a father and daughter to write a book. So I went with her with this idea, I said, let's write a book. And she thought, really great, cool, let's do it. So I thought, I mean, I'll start with the first chapter because she's in high school, right? So I got that time. I write the first chapter. I give it to her. And she eventually gives it back. And she's real upset, upset. And it's like, what's the problem? She says, it was awful. <laughs> it was just awful. Yeah, yeah. And, and she says, I, I rewrote the first page for you. Here you are, the first two pages. Right? And she, she gives, she's very nervous. It's like, okay. Right. And I read it. And it's like, okay, I said, I get the message here. And she went back and did her schoolwork, and she ended up going to creative writing in New York, right? Yeah. Meanwhile, I keep writing, and I keep flogging away on this thing and flogging away. And I sort of teach myself how to write just by doing it again and again. And yeah, again. yeah. And Tapping the, into that creative the, flow. The original story was about a crazy father who decides to take his family around the world following Slocum's route. That was the original idea. Oh, okay, yeah, right? yeah. And it's just about, you know, the kind of breakdown of relationships, et cetera, et cetera. And, yeah. Oh, so you got to do, like, character development and oh, all yeah. that sort of a, stuff. It was basically a, not a very good plot with interesting, <laughs> char with interesting characters yeah. and kind of an around-the-world trip. That's where it started. And over the years, it changed. It became much more involved. Yeah. It developed a real, a real plot uh, with very believable characters. So it becomes, I used to call it hyper-realistic. Okay. That you read it and you're basically there, right? But it's a fiction. It's all made up. Yeah, yeah. But the things that happen uh, may be based in history, that they go to real places, they do real kind of things, the kinds of things that you would experience could really happen. Yeah, yeah. Right? Have happened. So it's feasible. It's not like a Marvel universe. No, no. It's, it's, it's a very feasible story. And, you know, it was originally intended for young adults. I wrote it using my son as the sort of protagonist. Uh -huh. And he was about 10 when I started and about 12 or 13 when I pretty much got the whole thing laid out. And it kind of aged as he aged. So he was the protagonist. And he read it any number of times and sort of liked where it was going. Yeah. So that kind of helped. I was sort of amateur finding my way here, right? And it developed. And suddenly it becomes... Uh, true adventure story of a family's history of the Russian mafia with people getting killed, you know, with, you know, people out for vengeance, tearing themselves apart. Right, right. And, uh, it goes from one book to become three books. No shit. Right? 
Um, how long? How long? Uh, each book is about three hundred and fifty pages. And how long, time wise, was it? Time wise, it was started about oh five oh six. Uh, by about twenty fifteen, I'd done the three of them. Holy cow! Yeah, it takes a while. A lot of editing, a lot of rethinking, a lot of understanding what you're trying to get out, learning how to write. You know, being able to describe things when people read it that they just they, they can visualize it. Yeah, yeah. And I think I had that skill coming in, but I didn't know how to really use it. Well, you're a heck of a yeah. storyteller. I mean, just yeah. listening to you for the last hour has been pretty learning how to use dialogue. incredible. Yeah. So people sound as if they are really saying things, right? Right, right. Yeah. Um, it was a lot of fun, right? And so you that, enjoyed the process. Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, and you learn so much. Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah. I mean, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna go around uh, Cape Horn in my book, mm-hmm. and I never you got it. Yeah, you got to study up. Anybody. I'm gonna go through the Magellan Strait, right? Because it's easier route. Right. What's it like? If I'm gonna talk about going around there, what's it really like? So I'm watching videos, and YouTube is like fantastic. Yeah. Oh yeah. They're actually, video greatest and, resource yeah, the 20th boat's century. Going it. Yeah. What's it like to be in a really big storm? Yeah, you know, where waves are 30 feet high. Yeah. You know, and you watch enough videos, it's like, shit. <laughs> I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> you know, right. Right. It's scary as hell, particularly for kids. This boat is going to have a mom and a dad, and the oldest boy, the next eldest boy, and a little girl. And they're going to be named after Joshua Slocum's kids. In fact, yeah. their entire identity is sort of wrapped right around wrapped him. around the Slocums. And their name is Walker. Because that's the, the maiden name of Slocum's first wife. Interesting. And these kids are named after Slocum's kids. So you get this, as you get into the story, you realize that all these identities are totally made up. Yeah, yeah. Right? And the story reveals itself as the kid talks about himself and that he's got burns the whole way up the front of his arms. His arms are just burn scars. And he was told he fell on a room heater. And then he re- eventually realized it was far worse than that. Whoa, dude, yeah. you got me thinking. Oh, I no. got to get this book. Yeah. What, it, what's the book called? Uh, well, originally it was called Sharkbait. And there was a book. There was a book called Sharkbait out there already. Right, right. That I can't do that. So, right next to Sharkbait, the character that uses the term Sharkbait refers to Chicken of the Sea. Yeah, yeah. So it became Chicken of the Sea. Chicken of the Sea. So the first one is Chicken of the Sea, and there's uh, what is the next one? Uh, Chicken two. So chicken in the chicken of the the sea, sea, then chicken two, chicken two, and and free-range chicken. (laughs) That's great. Over the three, the kid ages from about twelve, which is where my son had been when I sort of locked it down. Yeah. To about fifteen or sixteen, so it's a kind of combination of a coming-of-age story where he's growing up and he's discovering sex and you know being dominated by his crazy father who he thinks is crazy but doesn't realize that his father's got a whole different agenda. Right, right. You know, that his family has a history that he has no grasp of. You know, the kid has, a, for example, he has a guitar that he plays. And he doesn't remember anything from before age four. Most kids wouldn't anyway. So he has very, very faint memories of four and the guitar, and that's about it. But he plays this guitar, and he's a natural at it. Oh, but he, he never, yeah, but he doesn't know why. You, he never tells you why he's a natural, but he has certain skills that 
he has that you discover as you read this thing. Yeah. Right? And then his father says something about the guitar is, was once played by Segovia. And take care of it because it's worth money. And if you actually Google the guitar, right, yeah. it, it may have been played by Segovia. It's a very valuable. It's worth about $25,000. And these kids have grown up living in a trailer in Newport. North of, north of the crazy Jew. guitar. Oh my! You well, like have well, to drop well, little seeds and oh, little, subplots. Yeah, it goes. It starts on the very first page, and, the, and this is what my daughter gave me. Yeah, she had the kid at age four. I'd started him just as a young kid. She pushed him back to age four, and he's sitting on the vanity counter in this trailer home, while his father is trimming his goatee. Right. And then he asks, does he look like the captain? And they've got a little etching of Slocum, a little photograph of Slocum, I should say, on the wall. Yeah. Right? And uh, he doesn't realize this is an original etching. Someone spent a lot of money buying. They have an original copy of Slocum's book. Yeah, yeah. Right? I mean, it's worth big bucks. They've had money in the past, but he never realizes that. When they do Christmas, they get the Christmas ornaments out, and they're all Russian antiques. He, he never t- he, and I tell you, you know, he came from Russia. Right, right. But they happen to have Russian antiques. Well, don't don't give yeah. away the whole yeah. book. No, you sold no, me no, on it. This started, is great. But it goes for a thousand pages. Right, right. right. Yeah. Uh, so I wrote the three books. And then I thought, you know, it needs to be, someone actually came to us and said, you know, interested in doing a movie script. Yeah. So she started the movie script. And I thought, you know, I'd see what's involved. And I started looking at it and I started helping her a little bit. And after about four months, it was kind of really, she came and said, I can't stay on the project. I have to go, I have to leave. And you're like, well, why? It's like, well, you do it better than I do. All right. So it's I, not for everybody. She, she taught me. Yeah. And after a few months, I was being able to do what she could do because I knew the story. I knew the characters. I mean, I could, of course I could do it better. So we, I may, I've written uh, two scripts and most of a third for that. Uh, and they've been touted around and we're trying to get movie companies, but it's oh, a yeah, hard, good luck hard, with that. It's very hard, right? Yeah, yeah. it's not a... Uh, but, uh, but it's a great story. <laughs> yeah, well, and where, where are the books available? On Amazon? Uh, they're on Amazon. Okay. Uh, cool. I have some hard copies on my boat that I'll bring down for later on for you. Oh man, yeah. thank you. you I get, appreciate. If you, if you convey the news once you've read it, yeah, I oh, think, for I think sure. you're going to find. I mean, it's not like a, just an around the world story, right? And well, that's not, thing compared to. I mean, my yeah. book because I'm just writing about my experience. Exactly. So there's and I wasn't. And that's and that's that's got a real value because it's so personalized to you. Oh yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Right. Well, but, and it's yeah. a rare. It's such a rare thing to go and actually do. Oh yeah, that yeah. It's. It, it, I think that's what has lended itself to keep selling because there's only about five or six books about doing a solo nonstop, and most of them are pretty hard to get through. Well, yeah, if you're, you're not already interested you, in the subject, if you read Slogan's book. Oh yeah, well his is different. I'm talking about but solo nonstop. But I tell you what, it's still. At some point, it's like, okay, so you had dinner with the governor general's wife. It's like, you didn't really care. You know? He's, uh, the, you know, the he's, places kind of merged together. It's a newfie. Right? <laughs> and it's like, he was, actually, he was a sea captain. He wasn't a writer. Yeah, yeah. And to do it the first time was obviously a phenomenal undertaking. Right? And, you know, reading the book, it's like, you really need something else there. I don't really see, I see something of his character. Yeah. But 
it's sort of for me it's like it's just a travel it's like a travel diary it, it, I yeah I I really enjoy his sort of wit and his 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 dry oh, humor and yeah. stuff and it's just the New England humor yeah such a fascinating yeah. story his life history is phenomenal oh my yeah. it's it's incredible yeah. man all right well well listen okay. we, we're definitely gonna wrap this up but so <laughs> the book the three books are available on Amazon yep and it, do you use a pen name or is I it u- I use my middle name and my first name okay so the books are by Neil Barry. Neil Barry and it's chicken, chicken of the sea, of the sea. Just, like, just like the chicken and the sea tuna fish. Oh man! Yeah. Well, I know yeah. what I'll do is uh, I'll actually put a link to them in yeah. the in the description for the podcast. Yeah, but yeah, look, I'll, I'll bring the books over. I'll give you the three for free. You, know, you need to read these things. Oh, because, cool! Because you'll you'll you'll, you'll be sitting I'll take here. them on the trip. Exactly, you'll sit and you'll be like, yeah, I can tell you right now. The first one took forever. Yeah. The second one. Unless you've been doing a lot of cruising, it seems like it's just repetitive. The same sort of things happen. People keep going after them. Right, right. And people don't realize how easy it is to follow someone around the world if you're doing a cruising route. Yeah, because everybody's it's, going the, the same, same way. way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And everybody's short of money. So if I give somebody $100 to let me know when my good friends turn up, oh yeah, you'll call me. Definitely. Yeah. Oh, interesting. You know, so oh, you know, the third book... They leave the boat because at that point, you know, three books about being on a boat. The kid has to have a life. Yeah, something's going to change up. And right? his life is taking <clears throat> him in this different direction, but it also leads to the ultimate conclusion of his family story, which is really important at that point. Well, don't don't give it away. No, I'm not giving it away. Criminy, jeez. Yeah. Well, Barry, this yeah. has been an absolute pleasure, my friend. Yeah. Um, this is great because I, you know, in the marina. We've we've chatted yeah. passing back and forth, but that's one of my favorite things about this podcast. Uh, you know, this is this is going to be episode seventy three, and I've <laughs> I've probably done maybe thirty or forty interviews, yeah. and it's it's turned into just I've realized that it's a great way to it's a great excuse to be able to sit one to one with somebody and just well, have a conversation. You've done so much, really, by yourself. Yeah, it's yeah. nice to have I mean, a little uh, companionship. Just, 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 just to have the get up and go, to go out there by yourself. People don't realize by yourself out there. Well, I yeah, I blame just tremendous respect. It's like wow, you know. I blame these two guys. Yeah, Montissier yeah. and Knox Knox, Johnson. Yeah. yeah, those those guys did it to me. Yeah, had I not read some of those books, I would have never done it. But hey, so what, I'm glad I did. So where's the next trip? Uh, short term, just up to Maine, offshore from here, taking off within the week or so. Um, after that, I don't know. I've been cooking up a little bit of an idea about sort of a, a figure eight trip around the North and South Atlantic where you sight the Azores, Cape Verdes, um, uh, Tristan de Chuna, and then on your way back up, St. Helen, Ascension, um, Sao Paulo Island and then Bermuda. Okay. And you just leave from anywhere on the East Coast. It'd be about 14,000 miles. Yep. But I think it would be kind of a neat route because you could use those islands as like technically as race marks, so to speak. Yep. But it'd be good a good long distance solo ocean trip without the dangers <clears throat> and the the risk of the Southern Ocean. I mean, you're still risking everything because you're out in the ocean, but... One container. Yeah, it's, it's true. But the, the Southern Ocean, here. you know, the thing well, about the, vicious, the Southern Ocean is that if when things go wrong down there, 
you're looking at a week before anybody comes to you. If they come. If they come. Yeah. And you can't you're not gonna survive in a life raft down there. No. Nah. You're you're it's you're you're just done for. So yeah. I mean you got maybe a couple of days, but uh, it, even if you're like fully prepared, <laughs> full on, you know, life saving yeah. suit and all yeah. that stuff, but nothing's gonna save her. Yeah, it's you're it's shot, a very unforgiving bait. place. At least in the Atlantic, something goes wrong. I mean, you know. You got a chance someone will come back. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I, I deep down inside I'm a trade wind sailor. I love just a decent breeze, nice and warm. And I like to be out there. I, I think my my brain slows down a lot and I just take in and immerse myself in the environment. Yeah. I do a lot of reading, listen to music. Um, there's just no distractions like the internet and advertising and buy this and all that. And yeah. I don't know. I, I find it to be a very valuable way to spend my time. Yep. But I also know that, uh, you know, gray hairs are getting a little more. And uh, <laughs> I've spent, I've spent, I added it up. I've spent somewhere around like 500 days alone at sea. Yeah. Something like that. Maybe you've got to be able know. to be by yourself. You definitely have to, for yeah. sure. But it's not, um, it's one of those things. I think just about anybody that would go out and do it. It would take a couple of weeks, but they're pro. Well, no, I couldn't say that because there are stories of people that go crazy out there. Well, there's the Chapman, there's the whole thing of Slocum where he has the bad food and he has, he gets yeah. delusional and he, he has, eats the cheese and the plums, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, and he, he talks about uh, when he crossed yeah. the Indian Ocean after I think uh, either Keeling and Cocos Island or yeah. Christmas Island, that was his longest stint, was 70 days. Yeah. And he said he sat down below most of the time and read books, and it was like the most boring part of his voyage, I think. Yeah. But he was a real social character, it seemed like. Yeah. Um, so, I don't know. We could go on sort and on, but... Sort of, a, sort of a sad life, though. Uh, Not I, that part of it, but his, his, his personal life. Uh, I, you know, I don't know too much about uh, all the stuff that, that he went on. We could probably do a whole other podcast well, was, on him. He was Jeez. sort of mistreated by his family. I mean, he... He was kind of an anomaly in the world. I mean, he was... Well, he was a, a captain of a, a small tall ship or a bark or something, yeah, right? Sailing, Northern he, Lights. He was a sailing ship in the age of steam. Yeah. And oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, his whole thing was being ripped away by, so, by developed by society. Yeah. Uh, and he had problems with his wife's family, and he got married again, and he lost ships, and just, you know, it's a sad story. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then, yeah. in the end, he's doing just a quick rip down to the West Indies and disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Could happen to anybody out there. You know, I had one, last thing. I had a friend who came through this marina one time, and he'd he had a, he had a catamaran, but his previous boat was not a catamaran. It was a, a sloop or something, and he was down in the Caribbean, middle of the night. He's asleep, and he hears this bang, and as he gets up, the water's coming through the bow. He rushes from his cabin. He grabs his wallet from the table, and he goes up the companionway. And the boat is already going down. Oh, it goes fast. And it's wow. going down like this. He manages to get into the, his uh, dinghy on the davits, and he cuts the lines as the boat goes under. Wow. Over in 30 seconds. All he has left is his dinghy, his wallet, and himself. I think he had his passport with a wallet. Huh. <laughs> How long was he out there before he got rescued? Not too long. But he did get rescued. He did have his boat insured. Yeah. And they bought the catamaran. Huh. Uh, but he was like from Hungary or Bulgaria or someplace, and he was going to take his boat back over there. And he took this catamaran and put the entire roof of that main cabin, he covered with solar panels. 
Yeah. I swear the guy can one like a clothes dryer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Some people need the juice. It's like, what are you going to do? You're one person. What are you going to do with all the energy? You know, you can't use it. Yeah, right. You know, you have so much <laughs> in the batteries. Yeah. Well, yeah. you've heard the story of Stephen Callahan, you know, 70, 72 days. Did you read that book, uh, no, Adrift? I am. A, I may have. I've been so long. Well, he, he yeah. basically hit something off the coast just after, like, uh, the Canaries or something yeah. like that. But he ended up 72 days in his life raft and washed up on Guadalupe. Or some yeah. some uh, people picked him up that were fishing because, obviously, there were you, fish all around his you, life you raft. You carry a life raft, right? uh yeah yeah oh yeah i've got i i switched from a six man to a four man that's all you need yeah yeah you know i mean because the idea i've got an e-perb obviously and all that stuff but the idea of being out there for that long without uh getting picked up is but you know, pretty the, slim these it, days well the thing is it can, if, without the e-perb there's no guarantee it will work yeah, yeah, it's true. I, mean, I carry one on my boat. I carry the life raft. I have a ditch bag. I have a you know the Katie Dine mine right up there. Katie Dine water maker. Mine's right under the under the companion waist. I lift the stairs up, pull it out, and toss it up. Yeah, yeah. Right. Um, I mean, I keep thinking the thirty second rule. Can you get it out in thirty seconds? No, I'm probably closer to a couple of minutes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but you know, if you get in the Gulf Stream and you can't report it by AIS. Mm-hmm. then you're going to have to go all the way around the top. Like yeah, all right. You're going to do a lap. So I, I carry, it's probably got two months or three months of food in that thing. Oh, wow. Holy in my ditch smokes. bag. I mean, it's those ugly little dried out bars. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, oh. 8,000 calories I, I do have a ketodyne water maker, little one of those portable guys. I've got one of those, yeah. Just in case. because you're ne- I mean, if you don't have it, you're going to be dead. No, it's true. Yeah. It's true. Yeah. You can't count on the, the rainwater. You know, on the on my trip, my that was my water maker was one of those yeah and it broke after 20 gallons it produced whoa couldn't fix it either so from from just as i entered the indian ocean all the rest of the way and i had i had about 15 or 20 gallons left and i was catching rainwater for the entire entire rest of the trip yeah that speaks volumes to your durability out there (laughs) well and it was one of those things where i could have very easily pulled into perth or stopped well, in new true. zealand or, or anything like that but i i sort of was like and i blame again knox johnson because obviously he had to do the same thing oh, yeah, survival yeah it's like yeah. oh but it it helped make the story so. well yeah you're one in a hundred thousand one in a million perhaps you know you could do that kind of stuff most there, most can't survive i mean they'll need their, their survival kit well there's there's yeah. basically uh i i know in um I think it's Peter Nichols' book, which is called A Voyage for Mad Men, about the first Golden Globe. Uh, He talks about a section called, uh, or sort of a behavioral pattern called the Ulysses Factor. He says it's just certain people, very select, or very, very few people in this world, for some reason, they get it in their brain. It's like a defect that every once in a while, we have to go out and do these things, take these epic challenges separate ourselves completely from society and then return to share the experience with the world. Yeah. But it's because it's this sort of defect, you're not back in society too long before all of a sudden you're like itching to be like, okay, what's next? I got to go do another thing. It's an elevated sense of adventure or something. Yeah. Yeah, And it it, it unfortunately claims the people's lives and and it disrupts people's lives. I know it has for mine, but um, you know, at, at the same time I enjoy it and I'm, 
I may be very poor in money, but I'm very rich in and memories. Experiences. And experiences. Yeah. So That's let's true. end on that, okay. Barry. Hey, thank you thank so you. much. Hey, that was fun. really great. Hey, thank you.